Howdy do, everyone. This is David Sanchez, and you're listening to episode five of the Riffs or Die podcast for October 20, 2020, or 2020. I know you millennials these days are getting real crazy with your lingo, so maybe I thought I'd try to make 2020 catch on. If you'd like to support this podcast beyond just telling your friends about it, you can go to patreon.com slash riffs or die and sign up as a Patreon member to get access to some really cool, rare, one-of-a-kind merch items like handwritten lyrics. You'll get access to extra episodes. You'll get discounts for the web store, riffsordie.com. And as I'm recording this right now, there are six hand-signed, hand-numbered, holographic laminates left. The first 50 patrons to sign up will get one of these. I've already sent a bunch of them out. And uh, yeah, there's six left as of right now. So get on that before they're all gone. I will not be making them again. On this episode, I'm going to dive into something that quite a few people have asked me to discuss. So on this one, I'm going to discuss the history and the origins of Havoc. Well... It all started when I was just a little boy. So I started learning how to play guitar at the age of 13. And after I had been playing for about a year and a half, I hooked up with a drummer that I went to high school with. His name was Hoken Shogren. And this was probably in late 2003. And he and I both loved Metallica and knew how to play a bunch of Metallica songs. We would hang out and jam Metallica music just because it was fun. It didn't start out as an idea to start a band necessarily. It was just fun to play music with somebody else. Before the band actually got started and we started writing our own music, Hogan and I actually got to play bumper music for our high school's basketball team. We would play little like ditties in between plays, no different than what they do at professional games. Only uh, it wasn't recordings, it was us actually playing stuff live. We would play like Metallica riffs and Black Sabbath riffs, ACDC, stuff like that. And I'll never forget one time I had to play the national anthem before the game started and I totally had a brain fart in the middle of the song and just kind of fucked up the national anthem. That was one of my most embarrassing moments in a live setting, having a... gymnasium full of people listening to me and only me play this song and then I fucked it up that brings a level of humiliation that I don't wish upon anyone (laughs) but Hoken and I would play these uh, little bumper tunes for the basketball games and eventually I started writing my own riffs and getting them together to create full songs And shortly after that, we had put up some ads in music stores. That's how you did it back in the day. We just had some like flyers out that we were looking for a lead guitar player. And eventually we got hit up by a few people. We tried out some dudes. And the one that we tried out and we actually uh, wanted to join the band was a guy named Sean Chavez. Sean was a little older than us. He was um, already out of high school. But he could rip all of these Metallica solos, and that's what we really needed was somebody that could play lead guitar. 
I'd only been playing guitar for about a year and a half, so I was not good enough to be ripping solos. I could riff decently well, but that's not the same as ripping leads. So Sean joined the fold, and we were able to play like full songs for the first time. And uh, we actually got to play our high school homecoming dance after party. We learned a bunch of kind of lighter rock songs. And we played some Metallica, Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne, ACDC, Green Day, Blink-182, stuff like that so that kids could hopefully have a good time and not feel like they were getting yelled at the entire party. Eventually, we needed a bass player. So we played a lot of shows like this as a three-piece without a bass player. And eventually, we hooked up with another dude at our high school by the name of Marcus Korich. And Marcus was a guitar player, but uh, we had him step in to play bass for us. So that was the first time we had a full band with low end, two guitars, and drums. Now, the question of like finding a singer definitely came up. But the reason that I decided to do the vocals is just because we couldn't find anybody that had the kind of vocals that we wanted. So I became the singer of the band, quote unquote, just out of necessity. I wasn't the greatest singer. And I'm still not the greatest singer, but it's really funny listening to some of our really early material. You could tell that I wasn't totally well-versed at playing and singing at the same time. So a lot of the parts where there's vocals, the guitar is incredibly simple, like just ringing out chords and I could, you know, sing or yell over it. Really early on in the day, we played a high school talent show and, uh, that went over all right, I guess, <laughs> for what it is. But um, I guess I should go backwards a little bit further and talk about the name. There was a lot of names being kicked around and uh, a huge brainstorm list. But eventually the name Havoc was decided on because I drew up logos for some of the band name options. And when I drew up the logo for the word Havoc by changing the C to a K... I was able to make it look symmetrical because a K and an H don't look too different from each other. So I drew up the logo and it looked really cool. I decided that was going to be the name for the band because the logo looks cool. Simple name, five letters, and it was a good like sharp visual representation of the kind of music that we were playing. So as a four piece, we were playing in like coffee shops And uh, even played in bars where, you know, none of us were even old enough to drink yet. So they would let us in to sound check. And then we'd have to basically like hang out outside and then play our show and load out. And that was like all we could do (laughs) in the venue because technically we weren't allowed to be in those bars. We played some DIY venues back in the day as well. And eventually we started getting some opportunities to open for national touring bands. This was after recording our very shitty sounding first EP called Thrash Can. It was called Thrash Can because it sounded like it was recorded in a trash can. That was my first time getting my feet wet, learning about audio engineering and how to record things. 
So the EP was a result of a 15-year-old kid just learning how to record stuff. So it did not sound great, but we had something to show promoters kind of what we sounded like and, you know, keep in touch with them and try to get some more gigs. Now, there's a local radio station in Denver called KBPI, and it's the rock station that would play metal and, you know, all kinds of hard rock and stuff. And they used to do this competition called Best Band in Denver. And we entered that competition um, a handful of times, and that helped us get onto like a higher platform and in front of more eyeballs. And that helped us get a little more established and made people know who we were. And that also helped get us some gigs early on back in the day. Somewhere around this time, we released another EP, four songs, and it was called Murder by Metal. It was, again, all self-produced and self-released. And two of the songs that are on there actually wound up on the Burn record. Category of the Dead and The Disease both were recorded originally on that Murder by Metal EP. I think that must have come out in like 2005. And uh, there's a couple other songs that are on there that haven't really seen the light of day outside of that EP. They were a little more experimental but they still sounded like us. They're kind of hidden gems, I guess. I'm sure you could find them on YouTube or something if you were terribly curious, but they're not songs that we play, and they're not things that we've played in years and years. Now, I'll spare a lot of the gory details as far as like lineup changes and things like that go, but um, it wasn't too long after that Best Band in Denver stuff that we had a parting of ways with Marcus, the bass player, And shortly after that, there was a parting of the ways with the original drummer, Hoken. So in about 2005 or so, a buddy of mine named Richie Tice stepped in to play drums. Some people might know Richie from his other bands that he's played in over the years. Speedwolf, and he's now playing an axe slasher. And a guy named Tyler Cantrell played bass for us. Now, I played in a band from Denver called DDC which stood for Death, Destruction, Chaos. DDC also had a member of Speedwolf in it. The lead singer was Reed. And uh, there was also a drummer who played in a band that got pretty big here in Denver as well called Dead Temple. His name was Tyler Wilgus. DDC was a super cool band, and uh, we all loved them. One of the better ones that I can remember that came out of like the Denver metal scene. And... It was a really cool like punk crossover metal thrash band and I had filled in for them on a tour last minute when their guitar player couldn't do it and I think I had to learn about 16 or 18 songs in about a week and a half and they asked me if I could do it and I said "Um, I think I can (laughs) and that was my first introduction to going on the road but anyways The bass player of that band, DDC, Tyler Cantrell, stepped in and played bass for us with Richie Tice on drums. And at that time, we were in the Best Band in Denver competition for, I think, the second time. And we recorded the Ponemall EP. And some of those songs wound up being on our first record, Burn. But the Ponemall EP had some of the stuff from Thrash Can on it, as well as a new song called The Root of Evil. The Ponemall EP has some really ridiculous artwork on it that's not <laughs> not a highlight of our career by any means. But that EP 
got our foot more firmly planted in the scene. And that was the first time that we had something that we could send out to record labels to try to solicit um, maybe getting an offer for a, a record deal. So we sent that EP along with like a t-shirt and some stickers and buttons and stuff like that with a little press kit with a bio and list of accomplishments and quotes about the band and reviews and stuff like that. We sent it out to all the record labels that we could think of. And we used to send stuff out in old cereal boxes. We would pack up the CD and the t-shirt and anything else in an old Cocoa Puffs box or a Checks cereal box or whatever and send that out. That's how we originally sent merch out to fans that bought it. And it's also how we sent out our EP and press kit to labels. Well, eventually we got hit back by a couple of different labels. And by this time, we already had more lineup changes. And uh, a guy named Ryan Bloom had stepped in on the drums. And he was a drum teacher and had a degree from school. So he knew a lot about the technical proficiency of drums and was a really good player. And uh, Tyler had recommended his brother to play bass for us, a guy named Justin Cantrell. And Justin had a lot to do with the writing on the bass lines that wound up on Burn, but he actually bailed from the band as well before Burn even came out. The bass player that replaced him was Jesse De Los Santos, who wound up recording on Time Is Up and Point of No Return as well. So before we hit record on the burn record, Jesse was in the bass position. And this must have been around late 2008 or early 2009. We eventually decided to sign with Candlelight Records. And that's who put out our first three full-length records, as well as the Point of No Return EP. So we recorded the burn record in my house at the time. And this is the same house where we recorded Time Is Up. Point of No Return, and the Unnatural Selection album. Minus the drums. The drums for Unnatural Selection were recorded at the Gothic Theater in Inglewood, Colorado. So this was the first time we ever had a recording budget and uh, you know had money for artwork and for mixing and mastering and all that kind of stuff. So we tracked that thing, and Burn was essentially supposed to be a past, present, future kind of a history of havoc that's why it's got some of the first songs that were ever written on it as well as like we wanted to show which direction the band was heading so burn was essentially supposed to be like a catching everybody up to speed on what havoc sounds like the old stuff the new stuff and indications of the direction that we were going to be headed the first song i ever wrote was Identity Theft, and that song is on Burn. Some of the lyrics on Burn were written by a 15-year-old kid, and I think you can kind of tell some of the lyrics on Burn are not the most like poetic and heartfelt and uh, well-thought-out things ever, but, you know, I was a teenager. I was still doing homework. I was still uh, a kid, and I didn't have a whole lot of ideas for things to write about like I have had in more recent years. We had started touring when Pona Mall was out, and some of those past tour dates were included in our press kit that we sent out to all the record labels. I think that's part of what helped us get a deal in the first place. 
But when Burn came out in 2009, we did a lot more touring, went a lot more places. And um, one of the first tours that we did was with a band called Hatchet. And it was all self-booked. We didn't have a booking agent or a manager at the time. So we would book our own tours, basically trading shows with cool bands in whatever area we were trying to go to. We would do some research and find like the coolest band in Salt Lake City and the coolest band in St. Louis and the coolest band in Chicago or whatever. And we would basically hit them up and say, hey, we're trying to book a show in your city on this date. If you could help us book a show and maybe play with us, we'll trade the favor when you guys come to our town. When you guys come to Denver, we'll help you book a show and bring people out and, you know, scratch each other's back. So this is how we used to book tours. And we did a lot of touring on the Burn album cycle. On that tour with Hatchet, we had a drummer replace Ryan Bloom, who was just with us for that one tour, but now he's gone on to great things. He's currently the drummer of Morbid Angel. His name is Scotty Fuller. And Scotty hit us up, and we needed a drummer, and he's a really fantastic drummer. So, of course, we said, hell yeah. So he did this uh, tour with us, and we had this vehicle that just broke down all the fucking time. We were so broke, we had to get creative with ways to, like, (laughs) feed ourselves and make it to the next town. Definitely been through the trenches and um, not been handed everything on a silver platter. A lot of uh, (laughs) blood, sweat, and tears (laughs) went into the early days of touring. So Scotty was in the band only for that one tour, but he did a great job playing the songs and adding some new flair to them. Super solid drummer, and uh, check out his stuff. I'm sure he's got some really killer videos on YouTube. He played in Abysmal Dawn, and currently he's in Morbid Angel. But anyways, he had bailed after that tour that we did in support of Burn. So at this point, the band lineup was myself, Sean Chavez, the original guitar player, and Jesse De Los Santos. And this was the first time we had ever gotten a booking agent. So we were booked to do this 10-date run with Hammerfall from Sweden, like the power metal band. And uh, before that tour happened, we got Pete Weber on the drums, and Pete had to fly out and learn the songs and uh we hit the road like i think two weeks after he came to denver and the way that i found pete was by putting out ads all over craigslist all over the internet i searched for the big music cities all over the country and basically put out an ad that said signed thrash metal band that tours looking for a drummer And I got hit up by a lot of different drummers from all over the country. But for some reason, a lot of the drummers that were hitting me up were coming from the East Coast, specifically the Massachusetts area. And one of these people that hit me up from Massachusetts was Pete Weber. Now, I had already written and programmed drums for some of the music that wound up on Time Is Up. One of the songs being DOA. And when I sent Pete an email back saying like, yeah, the position's still available. I had sent him the song Morbid Symmetry 
and asked him to shoot a video and send me back a video of him playing it basically as a tryout. And I had also sent him a very early demo version of DOA that had programmed drums. And uh, the reason I sent him that one was the drums were fairly technical and reasonably difficult to play. So I decided if this guy can play this, he could probably play anything I would ever want a drummer to play in Havoc. So I sent him a program version of DOA and he hit me back a couple days later with a video of him playing it and just absolutely destroying it like perfect, murdering the parts. So I hit him back and said, hey, do you want to move to Denver and go on tour? And he said, yeah. So he moved out and he lived in my house, which by the way, the the original drummer Hoken had lived in my house. Sean Chavez was living in my house. And uh, throughout the years, many, many band members have lived in my house. My mom is the coolest and allowed me to have these strange long-haired people live in our house for years at a time without her being so generous with the space and opening it up to strangers. Havoc probably would have never gotten off of the ground. So huge props to my mom without her. I don't know that this band would have existed. And I also have to thank my brother. My brother's a couple of years younger than me. His name is Steven. He's a drummer and he filled in for us on drums uh, many, many times throughout the years, especially in the early days when we were in between drummers. He even went on tours with us in the early, early days. And he even shared his bedroom with former band members in the past. So I got to give a shout out and a huge thank you to my brother as well for his patience with all this havoc nonsense and also for helping us to get out on the road and play shows. He helped us get through some very important shows. We've also had a handful of other people fill in for one-offs and just short stints. So thank you to everybody who's filled in in this band and played in this band. Obviously, it wouldn't be where it is today without some help through all the years. Anyway, Pete came out and we started rehearsing for that Hammerfall tour. We went out and did that Hammerfall tour And things started getting a little shaky with our guitar player, Sean Chavez. So fast forward a few months, and we got a tour opening for Primal Fear. And on the show before leaving town on that Primal Fear tour, um, there was a big question mark on where Sean Chavez was. He didn't show up to the show, and uh, we had to do that first Denver show before going for that Primal Fear tour as a three-piece. And there was like no solos. So this day kind of spelled the end of Sean's tenure in the band. And on the way to the second show of that run, we were on our way to Kansas City. And I was in the back of the van with headphones and a guitar trying to learn how to play all the solos for the second show. We wound up doing that entire Primal Fear tour as a three-piece. Myself, Pete Weber on drums, and Jesse De Los Santos on bass. And I had to learn the solos. (laughs) This is in 2010. And I had to learn the solos, and uh, we did that whole thing as a three-piece. It was super weird being that naked um, as the only guitar player in the band and just only being a three-piece on this tour. But 
we made it through and uh, responses were pretty good. And by this time we were playing DOA live and I can't remember, but I feel like we might've been playing one or two other songs that wound up being on time is up as well at these shows. So when we got back from the primal fear tour, we started recording time is up and we started out with the drums. Pete had uh, a lot of already programmed drums and stuff to go off of, which he just took and embellished, twisted them into his own like style. And I had recorded all of the rhythm guitars. Jesse had recorded all of the bass. During the time when we were writing Time Is Up, it was really just kind of like me and Jesse in the band. So a lot of Time Is Up was written without a drummer and without a second guitar player. A lot of it was just me programming drums and Jesse and I just bouncing back and forth riffs. The vast majority of the Time Is Up album was written in my basement, and I didn't know what was going to happen next. We didn't really have a full band, and everything was kind of up in the air. So I was very determined to make like a super killer album, and I was really fired up and inspired and just ready to write the best music that I could. And Time Is Up is a result of all of that tension and uncertainty and pressure and, you know, the desire to outdo our first record. After the Primal Fear Tour, fast forward to August of 2010, I got hit up on MySpace way back in the day. I got hit up by Reese Scruggs. And Reese wrote in and said, Hey, did my Havoc page just not load properly? Or do you guys not have a lead guitar player right now? And I hit him back and said, actually, no, we don't have a lead guitar player right now. And he said, well, I'm interested in the job if you guys are looking for one. And I said, hell yeah. So I sent him Morbid Symmetry as well. And I can't remember, but I think I sent him another song too, just to see you know, if he could rip the solos and see how his playing was. And no different than Pete. He sent me in his like tryout video of him playing along with some stuff. And he had sent over some videos of him playing with his other band from Virginia, Monolith. We decided this is the guy. This dude rips. Let's get him in the band. So no different than Pete. I asked him, hey, do you want to come out to Denver and we can record some stuff and then we'll go on tour? He said, absolutely. So Reese moved into my house as well. So I had at the time Reese, Pete, and myself living in the house with my brother and my mom. And when Reese showed up, he came into a situation where Time Is Up was already all tracked, minus the vocals. We already had all the drums, all the bass, all the rhythm guitars. He took about a week, I think, give or take, and wrote the solos for the record. And we came in to my place, and he recorded all the leads in just a handful of days. I finished up tracking the vocals and I think it was shortly after that we went out on tour with a band called Wretched from North Carolina. It was us, Wretched, and Arm for Apocalypse. That was Reese's first tour and I don't think we put another tour in the books until after Time Is Up was like all done, mixed, mastered, everything like artwork ready to come out. And I believe it was early in 2011, we went out with Malevolent Creation, 
full-blown chaos, the absence, and a band from Australia called Beyond Terror, Beyond Grace. We did this tour and played a lot of stuff as a four-piece with Time Is Up already recorded and done. So we were playing a lot of Time Is Up stuff on this tour. It went over really well, and that was kind of our first time we were going out playing new material that everyone had a part in doing some of the writing and the recording of these songs. This is the first time we had kind of a solid lineup of people that all were on the record that were also doing the touring. So we did some more tours on the Time Is Up record, and things were going well. It wasn't like we blew up all of a sudden, but people were digging the record, and we were starting for the first time to do like decent and merch sales and get a little bit more money on the road. We were still fairly starving artists, but we're more of glorified t-shirt salesmen still to this day. That's kind of like what a band is. We go and play the jingle to try to get people to buy the (laughs) t-shirt. So after Time Is Up came out, our label was pretty happy with it. We were happy with, you know, things getting better and better. And they asked us if we wanted to do an EP before we did our next full-length record. So we said, yeah, that became the Point of No Return EP, which we recorded a Sepultura cover for the song Arise, and we threw on the Postmortem Raining Blood Slayer covers that were recorded during the Time Is Up sessions, but we threw them on that EP, so they were on an official release. And we also wrote two brand new songs, and those were Point of No Return and From the Cradle to the Grave. These songs came together fairly quickly, and we didn't have a whole lot of time between tours to to come up with everything and write lyrics and record it all. So it was a fairly quick process to get this thing done and out there. And we shot some music videos for those two songs. And to this day, those are maybe two of our most popular songs and music videos. So I guess it was a good idea in the end to record that little EP before we did Unnatural Selection. So after the Point of No Return EP came out in 2012, we did some more touring and yet again had another lineup change. Jesse De Los Santos, our bass player, and us had uh, split ways and Jesse was replaced on bass by Mike Leon, who we had met from him playing in the absence and he had done merch for us on a tour that we did with Skeleton Witch, which was a 65-date tour and we did 63 shows in 65 days one of them got canceled so realistically it was 62 shows in 65 days which is still pretty fucking insane and on that whole tour i was playing and then packing up my stuff as fast as humanly possible and running back to the desk the the mixing console to mix skeleton witch every night i was a busy guy on that run But Mike had replaced Jesse on the bass, and we were already a little bit into the writing of Unnatural Selection when Mike joined. So when he joined, there was already some stuff written, and he was with us for the completion of the writing of that record. And with Unnatural Selection, we tracked the drums in a big theater in Denver called The Gothic. So a lot of that drum reverb that you hear on the recording in the drums 
is real reverb from the giant room that we recorded stuff in. Unnatural Selection was the first time that we went to a lot of different places all over the world. We had gone to Europe in 2012 for the first time. I can't remember if that was before or after Point of No Return came out, but we had done Europe, we had done North America, but on Unnatural Selection was the very first time we went to South America and Australia and Asia, and we basically went all over the whole world, every continent except for Africa. Unnatural Selection was a crazy, crazy tour schedule. We played so many dates. Um, actually, in that Bands in Town app, they had like a list of the bands that played the most shows, I think it was. And we were in the top five in the whole world on that Bands in Town app, you know, for number of shows played in number of countries as well. We went hard during 2012, 2013. Unnatural Selection was our last recording obligation for Candlelight Records. And after that, we had signed with Century Media. Now, between Unnatural Selection and Conformicide coming out, we had another lineup change. We can't seem to hold on to a bass player for very long. I don't know what it is, but uh, at this point, Pete and Reese have both been in the band since 2010, and they've been in longer than anybody else other than myself in this band. To this day, I'm still the only original, original member But those guys have been in since the second record, so that's nothing to shake a stick at. That's a long time to be in a band. So our lineup has been very consistent in the two guitar positions and the drums for a decade now. But before Conformicide came out, we were joined by Nick Shingelis on the bass position. When Nick joined the band, we had dove into the Megadeth tour. And shortly after the Megadeth tour, we recorded Conformicide out in Garden Grove, California with Steve Evitz. Now, Conformicide was the first record where we had worked with an outside producer, and it wasn't produced by myself and the rest of the band. So Conformicide was recorded in, I think, late 2016 and came out in 2017. It was our first record that came out on Century Media Records, and it was our fourth studio record. Conformicide was a really cool step, I think, musically. Um, We started incorporating a lot more bass-centric things into the band's sound. I've always loved the sound of slap bass. I think it's the coolest sound a bass can make, and there was a lot more of that on Conformicide. There was some of that on some of the older records, but there was a lot more of it on Conformicide. And Conformicide took us to a lot of parts of the world, North America, Europe, South America. We played a lot of cool festivals, and we did a lot of cool festivals on the Unnatural Selection Tour as well. Between Conformicide and V happening, we had a lineup change again. So we... (laughs) Nick's shoes were filled by our buddy Brandon Bruce, and Brandon had gone on tour with us a little bit He jumped in the vehicle and just kind of hung out and helped us out with loading in, loading out, and just uh, hung out for the ride. And when we split ways with Nick, Brandon offered himself for the gig. 
and sent in some videos of himself playing some of the conformicide stuff and some other old songs and uh, proved himself worthy of the position. He was able to play a lot of the stuff that we needed a bass player to be able to do. And when it came time to writing V, Brandon came over to my house. He flew out here from Nashville, where he lives. And we got together and kind of put our heads together on writing some bass lines to flesh out the rest of V. And V just came out May 1st, 2020. That's our fifth record. And it was produced by Mark Lewis. He also did the mixing and the mastering on it. I think it's our best sounding record that we've put out. And that's kind of catching everything up to where we are today. So that is the long story short of the origins and some of the history of Havoc. There's a lot of details that were spared for time's sake. And I guess if you want to know more specifics on the stuff, you guys can write into me at podcast at riffsordie.com. I'm happy to answer some questions, and I like hearing from you guys. So that being said, let's dive in to some of the questionists for the week. This question says, Hey, David, I was wondering if you and the band were ever going to re-record your EPs like Ponem All. I just found the record, and there are some really cool songs on there. Well... I don't think we're going to ever re-record stuff like Ponemall. That's really, really old material, and I don't feel like rehashing really old stuff. Maybe we'll re-release it someday, but I can't foresee re-recording it. I'd like to just leave that EP and some of that old stuff as it is, as like a relic from history. And if it's going to be enjoyed, I'd rather that it just gets enjoyed as it was recorded at the time. Thanks for writing in. This person writes in and says, The podcast slays, dude. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Can't wait until this pandemic is over so we can see you bros shred again. Yeah, we can't wait either. I guarantee you all the bands that tour a lot are fucking foaming at the mouth to get out there on the road. If and when this thing all kind of loosens up and touring comes back, I'm sure we're going to see touring like we've never seen before. All kinds of bands are going to be trying to get into all the clubs. And unfortunately, a lot of the clubs have closed, so it's going to be hard to book shows in these places. But let me continue. It says, my question is this. You are dying tomorrow and you have five bands or artists to see right meow. Who are you choosing? They can be dead, alive, or bands you've seen before. Stay heavy. PSV rules. (laughs) All right. Let's see. Five bands or artists that I could see right now if I'm going to die tomorrow. They can be dead, alive, or bands I've seen before. Well, I think I would have to go with Queen with Freddie Mercury, the original Queen lineup. I would love to see that. Obviously, that's never going to happen, but... That would be one of my wishes. I think I'd really like to see ACDC with Bon Scott on the vocals playing all the old ACDC stuff. I love Bon Scott's voice and his persona and his vibe that he put out. Just like a ultimate rock and roll badass. I really wish that I could see Frank Zappa play a show. I've seen his son Dweezil play a few times and Dweezil fucking kills it. His band is always amazing, 
And if you ever get the chance to go see Dweezil Zappa, I would highly suggest it. But I would love to see Frank play because Frank just had such a peculiar way of playing guitar and none of his solos were the same. Every single show, he would change it up so that you were never seeing the same show twice. And he also had so much humor in his music and a lot of his songs crack me up. Not to mention the musicianship in his music and the players that he hired to perform this stuff were all just like world-class musicians and it would be really fun to see a big band playing that tight with the original dude who invented the stuff. I got two more. Well, I never got to see Pantera play live. That would be a dream come true. Obviously, tons of people listening to this have got to be Pantera fans. And um, as we all know, unfortunately, Dimebag Daryl was taken away from us way too early. And that would be a fucking epic show to see. And I've got only one more band that I could choose to see live. Who would that be? There's so many bands that I would love to see live. It's hard to name just five. But um, since I'm just shooting from the hip here, off the top of my brain, I'm going to say Thin Lizzy. I wish I could have seen Thin Lizzy with Phil Lynott singing. That dude's voice was so fucking badass. Just so soulful and full of uh, emotion and power. I really love Thin Lizzy. It's one of my favorite bands. And I think that metal would not sound the way that it does if it wasn't for Thin Lizzy. All the harmonized guitar parts and just like so much attitude and, and shredding going on in that band. That would be my fifth pick for Band C if I was dying tomorrow. Thanks for writing in, dude. Great question. So every week I'm going to be trying to give you guys a listening suggestion. And for this one, I think I'm going to recommend Thin Lizzy's record, Renegade. Every song on this record is really great. There's some really cool synth stuff going on on this album. The shredding is just on a whole other level. And this is back before thrash metal even started to become a thing. If you've never heard the record Renegade by Thin Lizzy, I highly recommend that you give that a spin. There's a lot of really catchy stuff on it and just epic musicianship. Really cool lyrics, great vocals, and just the overall vibe and delivery of everything is perfect. Last question, then we'll wrap this baby up with a bow. This one says, hi, David. Hello. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I've loved the evolution of Havoc over the years and hearing you guys grow as musicians. V was a fucking crusher of an album. Thank you very much. It's my favorite Havoc album, and I think all the other guys in the band would agree. But this says, A few weeks ago, my wife and I went to Utah and stopped off for a few days in Denver, and I was wondering what your favorite day hiking spots were in the greater Denver area. Cheers from Nebraska. Nebraska. It was cool as fuck to see you guys with Soulfly several years back. Yeah, dude, we had a great time on that tour. And now um, our old bass player, Mike Leon, who was on Unnatural Selection, plays in Soulfly. He does a bunch of stuff with Cavalera. But uh, man, we've gotten a tour with some really cool bands over the years. 
We've gotten a tour with Sepultura, Soulfly, Megadeth, Suicidal Tendencies, Children of Bodom, Death Angel, Christian, Skeleton Witch, Toxic Holocaust, The English Dogs, Psychosomatic, The Casualties, Goat Whore, Forbidden, Revocation, Warbringer, Gorod, Ex Mortis, Three Inches of Blood, Angelus Apatrida, Overkill, Crowbar, Suffocation, Cephalic Carnage, Anthrax, Kill Switch Engage, the list goes on and on and on. I feel very lucky that we've gotten to share the road with some super killer bands and outside of bands we've toured with, we've also gotten to play a lot of festivals with some really sick bands like Gojira and Slayer, Testament, Exodus, you name it. We're very, very lucky to have gotten to do the things that we've done. But back to your question, the hiking spots. My favorite hiking spot that I like to frequent is in Boulder, Colorado, right there at the park where the flat irons are. It's these giant monolithic rocks that are just jutting straight up out of the ground pretty much at like a, I don't know, 60 degree angle or something like that. But there's a bunch of hiking trails back there. And my favorite one to hit is the Royal Arch Trail. It's a pain in the ass. It's a kind of a brutal hike. But the view from the top up there when you get to the Royal Arch is absolutely insane. And one thing that I like to do is uh, there's a way where you can get out onto one of the flat irons and you can like kind of safely lie back and you can remove all of the, the ground and stuff from your peripheral vision. I like to do that and just lay back where I can't see any of the ground or any of the mountain that's underneath me or on the sides of me. And I like to close my eyes and just keep them shut for a minute or two. And then when you open them, you have nothing in your peripheral vision. And you're super high up off the ground. You just feel like you're floating for a second. It's kind of freaky, but it's really, really cool. And you can see Denver. You can see all of Boulder, the whole CU campus and all that stuff from there. That would probably be my number one. The Royal Arch Trail in Boulder, Colorado is the shit. Thanks for writing in. I really appreciate you guys. I want to dive into one last thing. This is something that I need you guys' help with. I need you guys to write in and help me expand my knowledge on this topic. Please email me at podcast at riftsordie.com and write in with the most wise thing you've ever heard. I'll leave you with this advice that my grandmother left me before she passed away. She said, live in the now. It's great advice for all of us and a good reminder to, uh, you know, live in the moment and enjoy yourself now because now is all you really have. Tomorrow may never come. Yesterday's already gone. All you have is right now. So live in the now. That's it for episode number five of the Riffs or Die podcast. I appreciate all you Patreon subscribers. You guys are helping to keep this thing afloat and allowing me the time to put some extra effort into this podcast and keep my head above water. Thank you very, very much. If you want to subscribe on Patreon to get one of those hand-numbered, hand-signed holographic laminates and some extra stuff, Go to patreon.com slash riffs or die. 
that's it for this one. Try to leave the world a little bit nicer than the way you found it. I will talk to y'all next week. Take care of yourselves and everybody around you. Bye, 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 bye.